Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The late 17th and early 18th centuries marked one of the great turning points of Western history, a change of attitudes towards allowing people freedom to do what they wanted with their own bodies in private and with consent. By definition, though, before that, it was not accepted that people had that freedom. In England before the 1660s and in New England in the 17th century, and in many places across Europe, sexual relations were highly regulated, which is to say that sex before marriage, fornication, was forbidden, Adulterers could be put to death, and the church, the state, and one's neighbours all put huge amounts of energy into catching sexual wrongdoers and punishing them for their sins. We might associate this sexual illiberality with strict fundamentalist regimes today, but in fact it has its place in the history of the West too. To discuss this culture of sexual restrictions, I'm joined by Professor Faramez Dabuvala. Professor Dabavala is a senior research scholar at Princeton University, and before that he spent many years on the faculty at Oxford, where he's now a life fellow of All Souls College and of Exeter College. He's writing a global history of free speech, and he's the author of the acclaimed The Origins of Sex, a History of the First Sexual Revolution. I was one of many people to name it as one of my books of the year when it was published, And to quote myself, I called it fascinating, delightfully scholarly and enthrallingly readable, witty, insightful and compelling. And Farah was also those things on this podcast. Farah, I'm absolutely delighted to see you over there in Princeton and to have an opportunity to talk to you about this brilliant book of yours and the ideas in it. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. I wanted to pick up on this amazing idea of yours, which is that the first sexual revolution didn't occur in the 1960s, but it occurred in the 1660s and there afterwards, and that it was something that created the birth of the modern mindset. But of course, being not just the Tudors, I want us to rewind and look at the period before we get to this revolution, so to understand what was being revolutionised, as it were. So could you talk to us about... European ideas, perhaps late medieval, early 16th century ideas about sexual desire. Yes, that's a very good place to start. Well, I suppose the simple thing I want people to grasp at the outset is that we're going to talk about a world where people thought completely differently about sex than we do. 
Because we take for granted in the Western world today that sex is a private matter, that people have the right to do what they like with their own bodies. It's a basic, central, fundamental aspect of our culture. And we think it's wrong that in other cultures, people don't necessarily have all those rights. But actually, for most of history, especially in the 16th and 17th centuries, the opposite was true. Sex was not a private matter. And in fact, except within marriage, to have sex with another person is a public crime. And that is not an idea that's born in the 16th and 17th centuries. In fact, it goes way back. You can go back as far as you like. Every civilization since the dawn of time has had fairly stringent punishments against at least some forms of sexual immorality. And in the Christian Middle Ages, there's a kind of tension between ideas about desire and sex and the naturalness of falling in love and so on, on the one hand, and a great emphasis on the dangers of lust and on the harms of having sex except within marriage. So a lot of this is based on mainstream standard church doctrine. If you look in the Old Testament, there's a great fear of the pollution of sex. If you look in the New Testament, St. Paul says, better to marry than to burn. But best of all, of course, is to remain celibate. So the Catholic Church has this ideal that the purest people go without sex completely because it's such a dangerous and polluting and lustful thing. My favourite medieval theologian on the subject of sex is St. Augustine. And St. Augustine is a fantastically rich and interesting theologian. And also his views on sex are in interesting tension with his own life. And he starts off as this young, hip churchman who has a mistress writes about chastity in addressing God. He says, you know, please, God, make me chaste, but not quite yet, because I'm not ready yet. But then he develops, as he gets older, this very complicated and strong view that lust is, in fact, the most dangerous thing and the thing to be abhorred above all. And one reason that he gives for that as a man, and he writes about this to another bishop when he's quite an old man, he says, lust is so dangerous, seeing a beautiful woman can change the blood flow in your body. It can give you thoughts and it can basically give you an erection without you even wanting it to do so. And this is not true of any other thing that he can think of anyway. So lust is dangerous. It can lead you astray, lead your body astray, lead your mind astray. And there are many, many other ways in which it also can damage society. And people think finally also it not only hinders your salvation, but it will anger God. And the great example of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed because of their immorality is always in the back of people in the Middle Ages trying to uphold chastity. Santo Augustine sounds like an ex-smoker, doesn't he? Particularly keen to clamp down on that thing that he did a lot of. How do you think the nature of medieval marriage played into this? So on the one hand, you have the church trying and to a certain extent succeeding, imposing stricter and stricter standards. If you look at the early Middle Ages, they're already concerned with trying to curb people's sex outside marriage. But as we also know, there's a great deal of fornication in the Middle Ages. And uh, we know that partly because the church courts are swamped with cases of sex outside marriage and people constantly being called up and having to do penance and so on. So on the one hand, you have the church trying to impose these stricter standards and the machinery of that over the Middle Ages also builds up. There are stricter and stricter laws. There are more and more church courts. There are towns with their own rules and so on. But on the other hand, you have what we might call popular attitudes to sex, and especially popular attitudes to sex before marriage. And it's generally understood that adultery is a bad thing and a dangerous thing. Part of this is a very patriarchal notion that women belong to men. And so adultery is the theft 
from a man of his wife, which is the most heinous crime you could commit against him. But people are much more lax on the subject of sex before marriage, and especially because in England, as in other Northwest European societies, people marry fairly late, and there's quite a lot of interaction between the sexes. They're not kind of rigorously separated. And in courtship, it's clear that people do play around and fool around. So the the idea that you shouldn't have sex at all, especially if you're planning to get married, is a hard sell. And there's quite a lot of popular evidence for people thinking, well, if we're planning to get married, it's fine to have sex. And the church has a hard time upholding a stricter standard. Again, we can see this in the surviving church court records. We can trace a little bit both the expression of these attitudes and the degree to which people are having sex. And then the question of marriage is absolutely the heart of this, because the Christian doctrine of what's allowed and what isn't allowed is basically within marriage, sex is allowed and outside marriage is not allowed. But what makes a valid marriage, according to the church is simply the exchange of vows between two free individuals. And so if you are in love and you exchange vows in the right form of words, you don't actually even need a priest there or witnesses. You can just marry yourself. And so this is a very, very fundamental part of how people think about desire and think about love and think about sex as well. And this never really dies out until in the 18th century the church and the state start to really, really clamp down on clandestine marriage and self-marriage and so on and rule that, you know, it's only valid if it's in church and if bans have been called and you register it legally in some form. Even then, the idea that you can actually just get together with someone and plight your troth to them remains quite strong. And of course, this is a central theme in literature all the way from the Middle Ages into the 18th century. And that undercuts the church's ability and the state's ability to control what people are doing with their bodies. Because if you think that you're married and you say that you're married, then in the eyes of God, under church law, you are actually married if there's no impediment to it. Yes. And then, of course, it leads to all sorts of breach of promise cases where typically the woman says, we exchanged vows and we were married. And then I had sex with him. And he says, we did nothing of the sort. Or I had my fingers crossed. There's a lot of tokens are involved in the exchange of vows as well. That's a fascinating part of how people think this is real or not real. So if we fast forward to the early 16th century and the Reformation, in my own work, I've looked at the policing of morals imposed by Calvinists, Protestants in the south of France. But more generally, what do you think the sexual consequences of the Reformation were? We have to start with the sexual causes of the Reformation. That's maybe a strange way of putting it. But sex is actually a central issue in the whole reform movement. Before we even talk of a Reformation and before we talk of Protestants, the people who start criticising the church for its laxity in the later Middle Ages are not just talking about indulgences and things like that. Actually, sex is a fundamental part of it. They're concerned about the sexual laxity of the church in a number of areas. One of those is that priests are supposed to be celibate, but everyone can see that that's widely flouted. There's a lot of concubinage amongst the priesthood. A lot of priests have a lot of sex, and that seems at best a double standard, at worst a real failing of the church. So that's one area in which they're attacked relentlessly. And the other area that's related to that is the toleration of prostitution. The church, on the one hand, says that no one should commit whoredom. On the other hand, there's quite a lot of practical acceptance of the idea that people need to have sex. And if they aren't married, then they need to have some other outlet 
And there's quite a lot of theology that develops this idea in the Middle Ages. And so as a result, you have essentially licensed brothels in most parts of Europe that often the church is officially or unofficially connected to. And you also have the church founding institutions to look after reformed prostitutes. Anyway, prostitution is, in other words, an accepted part of the Catholic Church's worldview in various ways. And two stricter reform-minded Christians, that again seems like a heinous abdication of responsibility. So on those two points, and on more generally the fact that Christians are not being held to a high enough standard and the church courts are not cracking down as rigorously as they could, early reformers and then Protestants They make a lot of hay with this. And it's partly that they really believe this, but also that this is a tremendously powerful rhetorical device. I mean, claiming the moral high ground is always politically a wise thing to do. And that's what Protestants managed to do very successfully. And so if you look at the high theology of the reformers, if you look at Luther and Swingley and so on, they're not just talking about arcane matters of theology. They're talking about the whoredom of the Catholic Church and associating the Pope with sexual scandal. And that's both a polemical and a real point that they're making. So as a result of that, the outcome of the Reformation is that Protestants try to put in place a purer, chaster set of rules. They try really to ratchet up sexual discipline wherever they take control. And on the other hand, the Catholic Church is stung by this, and the Counter-Reformation also tries then to inculcate stricter rules. But the Protestants are by far the more prominent in this sphere. So the idea that adultery, for example, should be punishable by death, because essentially that's their reading of the Old Testament, that is something that's put into practice in a lot of the most reformed towns and territories across Europe, and eventually even in England. And that's a classic Protestant way of aiming for perfection. So if you like, Catholics are always happier and more content with the idea that people are fallible and that you can't aim for perfection and that the world is full of imperfect people. Protestants really try for perfection in the later 16th and early 17th centuries. And you see this also as a model experiment in the colonies that they found in the New World. The places where sexual discipline is legislated for most rigorously and executed most literally is in New England, for example, where people do make adultery punishable by death and make people go around wearing big scarlet letters if they have committed sexual crimes and so on and so forth. It is interesting, isn't it? I think this aspect of our history in Europe and in America is, well, perhaps it's more remembered in America, but I think for many Europeans, particularly with sort of modern day conversations about things like Sharia law, there's not that much recognition that this really is part of our European history as well. If you think about what the Taliban horribly are trying to implement and what the fundamentalists religious police in Iran does. It's very similar to the kind of outlook and the kind of practices and the kind of policing and surveillance and discipline that was commonplace across pre-modern Europe, including in England. Mm. Now, I have a question for you, which is that it seems to me there's something kind of strange going on with brothels. So in the area I've worked on in the south of France in Nîmes, the licensed brothel permanently closed in 1532 and then city councils across France in the 1550s follow suit and the moral shift is codified into law in the audience of Orléans in 1561. So public brothels become illegal. 
But all of that is before Protestantism is legal in France. So it feels like there's a societal shift that is paralleling the Reformation, but isn't exactly caused by it. Or perhaps they're both springing from the same impetus. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think you're absolutely right. So the basic idea about the culture of sexual discipline, as we might call it, that persists all the way from the early Middle Ages through to the middle of the 17th century is that it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. If you look at the difference between the early and the late Middle Ages, there's already a ratcheting up of discipline. And this continues to gain steam throughout the 16th century. This is not just because people are scared of God's vengeance, although that's a major part of it. It's not just because they worry about salvation and they want to save their fellow Christians from hell, but it also has very strong social and economic bases. And that's something that helps explain why it becomes more visible in the 16th century. The 16th century is a time of increasing population pressure and demographic change and pressure on land and so on. And so that's one reason why people start to get more and more worried about the social disorder and the costs of sexual immorality, because they worry about the burden of illegitimate children. They worry about the burdens of fights between people. I mean, one basic problem with sexual immorality is that it creates disorder between families and people committing adultery generally don't get on well with the wider community and the people who take sides in those matters. So there are all these social problems that are created. And finally, the 16th century, we also need to remember, is the moment that syphilis, this particularly virulent new form of venereal disease, starts to sweep across Europe. And that is very important also, first of all, in underlining people's presumptions about how sex is dangerous and sex outside marriage is dangerous, but secondly, in focusing attention on brothels as potentially not such a great idea anymore. So I think the fear of syphilis and the actual spread of the disease and the death and destruction that it wreaks is also part of what's going on with people taking a new view of prostitution and licensed brothels. But perhaps I should also give you a kind of concrete example of what all this means for individuals. I start my book with a very concrete example from Westminster in London. It's just a random court case. There are tens of thousands of cases like this you can find in the surviving records. In the winter of 1612, a man and a woman are arrested in Westminster and they're imprisoned and taken before the magistrates and put on trial before a jury of 12 men. And their names are Susan Perry and Robert Watson. And that's all we know about them, except that we know Robert Watson was a waterman. He plies his trade on the Thames, taking people up and down. They're accused of fornication, and worse still, a child has been born. This makes it an even more serious offence. And when they're interrogated, Susan Perry confesses, and it's hard for her to deny it because she has the child. You know, we haven't talked about the difference between the experiences of men and women very much, but it's a massive difference in a pre-contraceptive world. Robert Watson denies it, but they're both found guilty. And the thing that is so striking and chilling is not just that they're found guilty. The punishment that's imposed on them is a totally standard punishment in Westminster in 1612. First of all, they're immediately taken from the courtroom to the local prison, and there they're stripped naked down to the waist. Their hands are shackled and they're tied to the back of a cart. And the cart is pulled along by some horses, and then it starts to move. So they're dragged half-naked through the streets of Westminster. And behind them, a local constable deploys his whip and starts to whip them. 
So they're being dragged through the suites of Westminster. And I actually know the route. It's written down. It's specified in the court records. And I walked it once. It's a very, very long way. The point about this is serious public humiliation and a deterrent. So there's a particular route through Westminster that goes through all the places that are most likely to attract attention and people. And so they're basically dragged in this ritual of public humiliation through the streets of Westminster, and their backs are constantly being whipped until they're bloody. It's horrific. But that's not the end of it. They're dragged through the streets to the edge of the city of Westminster, and there they're cut loose and they're dumped. And the final, the most chilling bit of their sentence is that they're banished for life from the community in which they've grown up and lived all their lives. They may never set foot in Westminster again. And if they do, the same punishment will be inflicted on them all over again. They're simply outcasts. And that's an extreme example as far as England is concerned, but actually pretty typical of the mindset that underpins all this and of the effects that it has on people who are caught in the system. Of course, my mind races to think what happened to their child. Presumably she wasn't pregnant at the time or they wouldn't have carried it out. The child had been born. But, I mean, there's a combination there of corporal punishment and, as you say, this really distinct element of shame. And in the communities I've looked at in France, it only shaming, apart from adultery, sometimes it can go to law in adultery cases and certainly for sodomy cases. But shaming is a crucial part of it and some historians have said oh well that doesn't have much effect but I think in some age of social media we've started to realize again how pernicious and awful shaming is. Yes I think people don't always understand completely what is going on when these punishments are devised and implemented. The aim of all punishment and all sexual policing and it's epitomized by shaming punishments is not simple. It's really fourfold. The first is to assuage God, to show God that you do not tolerate such attacks against his honour and such breaches of his laws. The second is to expunge the pollution from the community. Even if you don't actually banish people, you have to somehow get rid of this uncleanness and shaming people and beating them and bloodying them, all those are ways of doing that, of cleansing the community. The third thing that you're doing is deterring other people. And that's why these things are always public and why others have to be involved to internalize what's going on. The fourth is to reform the offender. Again, the case of Susan Perry and Robert Watson is slightly extreme in that these people are just being cast out. And what's more common and why the punishments often start with much less severity, is that what you're trying to do is try to get these people to mend their ways. And it's similar to the punishment of heresy. These are people who've strayed from the true path and they need to be brought back into the fold and back onto the straight and narrow. So you don't start off with executions. You start with indoctrination and shame and then a little bit of punishment, and then more punishment, and it gets more severe as the offences get more severe and people are seemingly incorrigible. But underpinning this is also the idea that it's folly to leave these things to personal interpretation, because human nature is weak, and people's consciences are weak, and they will lead them astray. Again, there's a very powerful parallel with the idea of religious uniformity being essential and being something that has to be imposed from outside, because Human beings are weak and can't manage this by themselves. So all these things go into punishments and shaming people is a way of indoctrinating them. 
And we know that it works because if you look at the evidence, especially after the Reformation, you can see, first of all, the very, very concrete way of mapping this is how many people have sex before marriage. You can trace this if you correlate the dates of people's marriage with the date of the birth of their first child. If that's, let's give them a little bit of latitude. If the child is born less than seven months after the wedding, you'll be sure they had sex before. So on aggregate, you get a sense of how much sex people are having before marriage. And those numbers are startling for where we have them. You can see that by the early 17th century, people are having less and less sex before marriage. They're really internalizing these ideas about chastity and fornication and so on. And the other thing we can see, which is less quantifiable, but clear as well, is that people are taking to heart the idea that sex outside marriage is bad and wrong, that even fornication should be abhorred. And you can see that in the shape of the culture, the less frivolous attitude to it in the course of the 16th and 17th centuries. It's not to say that everyone is frivolous about sex, but on the whole, it is becoming a more disciplined society, for better or worse. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's interesting the point you raised about the difference for men and women. On the one hand, in this particular case, we've got a man and a woman being punished in the same way. Although, of course, immediately having one's top half bared for a woman is not equivalent to having one's top half bared for a man, especially if you've just had a baby. But also the question, I suppose, that you raise is about how they knew. You can tell people have had sex when there's a baby, but obviously it's not always going to be a pregnancy. 
So that's an obvious indication and not helped by ideas at the time that a woman had to climax in order to conceive. So even if she's claiming it's a rape, that's not really going to help matters. Otherwise, you've got to catch them red handed or you've got to rely on people telling tales. Yes. To us, those seem completely different standards of proof, catching someone red handed or telling tales. But actually, in pre-modern culture, they're much closer to one another. And the whole system of surveillance and constant checking on people and the punishments are all largely actually not based on what we would consider tangible proof, but on the idea of reputation, on the idea of fame. That's the contemporary word, a common fame that something is the case, something that everyone believes to be true is, for legal purposes, essentially true. The whole legal system works that way. In fact, in the medieval church courts, the way that they judge someone to be guilty or not guilty is often through this process called compurgation, where two sides are asked to bring people to basically vouch for them. And then they look at who's vouching for person A and who's vouching for person B. And the social weight of who is vouching for you determines whether you're guilty or not. So this is very much about communal self-regulation and community standards and communal opinion. And all the more so because pre-modern society is not one in which there is any kind of professional police force. All of this is done by people acting as church wardens or magistrates or constables or watchmen, not as professionals, but in their part time. These are roles that people are given or are asked to undertake to reflect their standing in the community. So you'll be going out as a watchman. Again, a deeply patriarchal society. These are all roles for men. The actual policing and the law and so on is all implemented by people taking their turn to uphold community standards. Women play an equally central role in upholding those standards. They're not part of the police force. They're not magistrates. But for example, in the judgment of what the community believes, women's views are very important when it comes to other women. So we can think of this as a patriarchal society, which it absolutely is, but it's also a society, as in all patriarchies, where those attitudes are internalised and judgment is pronounced also by women upon other women. So the imposition of sexual morality could be described as a grand intensification of patriarchal control over women, even a profound misogyny, perhaps. Absolutely. Depending on your particular theoretical background, you might also want to talk about people who are less well-off can get away with less. The richer you are, the more powerful you are in this society, the easier it is to flaunt the rules or bend them or get away with it. But that's true of any crime in this society, not just of sexual crimes. It's probably true of any crime in any society. But the system, nonetheless, is one that most people buy into. And over time, more and more people buy into. That's also important to remember. So how much is the crackdown on sexual morality part of the sort of broader campaign that's happening, at least in England, against vagrants and beggars and against those who are not well off? It's absolutely central to that, especially in the 16th century when the pressure of population and land and the economic downturns make it the case that communities start to be especially harsh on the poor. And one way in which you see this happening is there's a stronger and stronger sense in rural communities that they shouldn't even allow poor people to marry. Because the fear is, if poor people marry and have too much sex, they'll be having all these children, and they'll be breeding, and then those children will have to be taken care of 
by the community, by the parish. So there are these horrible instances throughout the 16th and the 17th century where people think, well, the poor shouldn't be allowed to procreate. And what that means is that actually they prevent poor couples who want to get married, want to do the right thing, want to set up a household. They prevent them from doing that. They don't let them get married legally. The economics of this are in the background all the time. It's fascinating how these arguments come back again and again. I mean, we see that sort of tone from tabloids saying that people on benefits shouldn't have so many kids. Or the, the other spin that's put on it is in terms of immigration, I suppose, or in religious violence. I remember looking at Hindu-Muslim violence in India and the thing that's always said by the Hindus is, look at all these Muslims having all these children. You know, it's that, that way of judging another community. It's always been a great way of othering people to claim that their sexual practices are somehow unnatural or wrong. And I suppose the extreme example of that is to say that they shouldn't have sex at all, or that they're not responsible enough to be allowed to have families and sex. And sadly, is also, as you say, not just confined to the pre-modern period. It's a perennial stick with which to beat other people. And how much here are public views going hand in hand with the moral changes? How much are people supporting this sexual policing? And how much do we know about the kind of popular attitudes towards illicit sex? There are two sides to this. On the one hand, there's a long-standing tradition of popular tolerance, especially of fornication. You can find people caught in the act who say, well, we're just having a bit of fun. And Puritans and strict Christians are always complaining that young people especially, and uneducated people especially, and poor people especially, don't really internalise proper standards of sexual propriety. All the homilies that people have to listen to in church are about not just how terrible this crime is, but also how it's bad that people joke about it and so on. And then towards the end of the 17th century and into the 18th century, which is the moment that people start to really think differently about sex, you get a whole host of new ideas about the naturalness of sex and new bases for arguing that actually people should be allowed to do what they like. But meanwhile, the idea of sexual discipline gets more and more powerfully indoctrinated into devout Christian communities. You can see this especially in places like Scotland, where they have a very thoroughgoing reformation. The laws there are always much stricter than in England. And for example, in the colonies of New England, there's a horrible case I found in my research from 1644 in Massachusetts. There's a young man called James Britton, and he falls ill and he believes he's going to die. And because he believes he's going to die, he feels like he should make a full confession of his sins because he's a devout Puritan, like most of the population in these communities. And so he confesses that a few months ago, he got horribly drunk and he'd fooled around and tried to have sex with a woman he wasn't married to, who was a young bride called Mary Latham. This is all. No one has arrested him. No one has found him in the act. There's no suspicion of this. He confesses freely because his conscience is troubling him because he knows this is wrong. By 1644, a lot of people have internalized these ideas very, very strongly. So what happens is, this isn't just written off as a confession or ignored. The magistrates in Massachusetts send for Mary Latham. It's the middle of winter. It's freezing cold. There's ice and snow. She's moved away. She lives in Plymouth. And yet they send to the magistrates of Plymouth to have her arrested. And she's brought back through this icy landscape in an open cart to stand trial. They're both put on trial for adultery, even though it's clear from the record they didn't actually have sex. But the idea of 
sexual immorality and the idea of even of adultery is so capacious that their intention and the fact that she was married to someone else all conspires to make this a really heinous crime. And the final striking thing about this is that Mary Latham knows nothing actually happened. By our standards, they did not have sex, even by Bill Clinton's standards, but real standards. I don't think anything happened. He was very drunk. They were on a beach somewhere. But because of this internalized shame and conscience, and because she's put on trial publicly and everyone is saying to her, you've done a terrible thing, she breaks down and finally she confesses and says, yes, I did a terrible thing. And then they're both led to the gallows. And on the gallows, surrounded by the people of Massachusetts, I think it's in Boston, she gives a speech, which is what you're supposed to do if you're a proper Christian, saying, yes, what I did was terribly wrong. Young people, listen to me. Don't do this. You two will go to hell if you don't refrain from these horrible, horrible acts. And then they're both put to death. She's 18 years old. Wow. I mean, yes, that case is a really striking one, isn't it? And it shows the power of society's mentality. They know they haven't done anything, apart from perhaps thinking about it, maybe talking about it. But they've literally done nothing. And yet that's sufficient to have them both executed. Yes. I mean, at one level, they know they've done, in our terms, nothing. But actually, they feel like they have done something really, really wrong. Yeah, from their perspective, they have done something. So there's a real sense in which the age of the radical Protestants, the Puritans, is kind of really sharpening up that culture of sexual judgment so that it is even to think of it is to do wrong. Yes, there's plenty of biblical foundation for that. You know, if you do it in your heart, it's the same pretty much as acting out on it. So it's easy to find scriptural foundation for greater severity if you want to. It's also easy to find scriptural foundation for greater laxity if you want to. And that's increasingly what happens in the course of the later 17th century, that people start to think of conscience not as necessarily fallible and imperfect and liable to lead you astray, but actually conscience as the most important guide to what is right and wrong. And that's partly an outgrowth of people arguing about religious toleration and thinking that because no one really knows what the right way of worship is, and Protestants have divided into so many different groups, there's no external way of judging this. Maybe you should look inward and try and just feel what God is putting into your heart. And the growing elevation of conscience as the ultimate test of right and wrong eventually spills over into moral matters as well. And people start to say, well, if I feel that it's fine for me to have sex with this other person, then probably it is fine. I'm short-circuiting the theology there, but that's the essence of it. So instead of thinking that human nature is fallible, that reason and conscience will lead you astray, people start to flip by the 18th century into thinking the opposite, that only reason and conscience can really steer you through complicated moral questions. Do you think also part of that change is the restoration, the famously licentious Charles II being restored as king? Is there a sense that this is top-down as well? Absolutely. Let's just rewind a little bit. The Puritans win is part of what the background is to this. So in the 1650s, just unexpectedly, the Puritans gain national power in Britain. And they finally get to implement on a national scale what Puritans in a lot of localities have already been doing fitfully, which is really punish sexual offenders and really ratchet up the pressure towards purity and the new Jerusalem and perfection, want a perfect society in which there is no straying from chastity. And in 1650, adultery is made punishable by death in England. And people are 
executed. If you have time, I'll tell you the grisly story of possibly the last person to be executed. I think you must, Farah. All right. So this is another piece of paper that I found in the archives that just sits with me because it's impossible to shake off once you read it. In 1654, there's a woman in the village of Biddeford in Devon who is accused of adultery. And because of this new law, which has already been put into place, this is a capital crime. And so she's taken from Biddeford to the local capital in Exeter. And she's imprisoned there. And then she's put on trial at the Assizes, the highest court in the West of England. And she's found guilty. But there's a twist here, which is that she's clearly pregnant. And that may well be the reason why she was accused of adultery. Even though it's strange because usually if you're married, that is a get out of jail card because no one can prove that it wasn't your husband. Anyway, we got you pregnant. She's pregnant and she's found guilty of adultery. And so the judges seemingly with some humanity let her live on, but they don't let her get off scot-free. They let her live in prison for goodness knows how many months until she's given birth. And then quite soon after she's given birth, they take the baby from her and they parade her to the scaffold and they hang her by the neck until she's dead. And this time we do know there's a final few lines in the record. It says the baby is to be handed from church warden to church warden all the way back to Biddeford to her widower, Richard. So this tiny infant, his mother has been murdered judicially, is then shipped across 40 miles by cart all the way back to the village. God knows what happened to that child and how it was received and so on. I think Susan Bounty may well have been the last person to be executed in England. But the problem with this drive for perfection is that the Puritans say the church courts, which had traditionally been the way in which sexual immorality was policed, the church courts are useless, they're much too lax, we need to really crack down. So they issue all these new laws and punishments and go full steam ahead and kidnap prostitutes in London and ship them across to populate the colonies. They do all these harsh things, which means that the regime of sexual policing is suddenly way out of line with popular attitudes. They're just a minority and they're a really harsh minority. And this is not something that has a lot of popular acceptance. And so after 20 years of this, after the civil war and the interregnum, when the church courts are restored and the monarchy is restored, there's been this huge void where on the one hand, there's been tremendous harshness. On the other hand, popular engagement with sexual policing is really hard to restore. And so that is a practical problem. Then you have this court, which partly in reaction against the Puritans is tremendously licentious. And they are very, very visible. Like you say, this is a top-down matter as, as well. Suddenly, there's this real disconnect between traditional Christian morality and sexual policing and what the highest, most powerful people in the land seem to think and how they're behaving. And that's a problem from which sexual policing never really recovers, even though people try. So actually, they're victims of their own success. They overreach themselves and don't take the population with them. I think that's absolutely right. It's both a moment of great triumph and a moment of the beginning of the end. The other thing that is happening here is that people traditionally have been able to uphold sexual policing across Europe because they live in very small scale communities where it's easy to survey the population and to find out what's going on and to keep on top of things. 
People live in small villages in the countryside, maybe a few hundred people at most. Life in cities, and especially in very big cities, is increasingly different. And London, this is the moment at which that explodes in its population to become, by the end of the 18th century, really the biggest city in the Western world. And so that puts tremendous strain on traditional forms of self-regulation and communal policing and so on as well. Leads to increasing professionalization of policing. And that, again, that further weakens the bond between community attitudes and what's going on. So there are all sorts of ways in which it becomes also impossible to continue this kind of small-scale regulation. And so we get in the 18th century to your first sexual revolution, where forms of consensual sex outside marriage move beyond the reach of the law in a way that they have been very much in the reach of the law in the previous two centuries. Now, obviously, we want to urge anybody listening to this to go and pick up a copy of The Origins of Sex to find out more about it, but just trail it for us. (laughs) It's a beautiful little penguin paperback, very affordable, so please do. The most exciting part of the sexual revolution, I think, is the intellectual changes that it epitomises. This is really about the Enlightenment and new ways of thinking about human nature, new ways of thinking about society, new ways of thinking about freedom and liberty. One strand of this is that people don't stop being Christians, but they start thinking about Christianity in a different way. Like I already said, the idea of conscience and reason leading you to understand morality becomes very prominent. Secondly, people start to have a completely different attitude to God. A major part of the impetus behind sexual policing up to the 18th century is a fear of God, a fear of God's providence. The idea that God is a wrathful deity, that he will strike down individuals, that he will punish communities, that he will expunge entire cities from the earth is a very, very powerful impetus to individual behavior and to communal policing. People are really fearful. And in the 18th century, that shifts. The idea of providence, that God intervenes in the world, starts to be thought of as a kind of indirect force. People still believe in God just as much. They start to believe that God is essentially benign and that providence is a general system. The new idea that epitomizes this so beautifully is that God is basically a great watchmaker, a clockmaker. He's made this beautiful mechanism and then set it in motion, and then it follows its own rules. And you don't need to worry about God intervening in the mechanism and changing the time or anything like that. It's all set up. And so that leads people in turn to think about what really are the fundamental ways in which God has set up the world. And that leads them to think about natural law in a different way. What is natural now becomes the guiding principle for what is right and what is wrong in sexual matters. And we've inherited that. We still think in those terms. If we think of something as natural, we think it should be allowed. If we think of it as unnatural, we think differently about it and we might even punish it. Everyone in our culture believes that thinking sexually about children is unnatural. We don't anymore think that having sexual attraction to people of the same sex is unnatural. But until quite recently, that was the main foundation for a discrimination against same-sex behaviour. Anyway, so this new idea is what is natural. And the great thing there for people who are seeking to theorise sexual freedom is that 
it's clear if you look around the world that the sexual customs of people in other places are very, very different. And so there's this wonderful new literature that combines anthropology and travel writing and sexual morality that says, look, in this place, people can have five wives. In this place, women take several husbands. In this place, people have sex with their aunts. It's clear from all these accumulated examples that sexual morality is something that differs very widely around the world. And so it's not a matter of natural law. It's a matter of custom. It's a relative thing. And that allows them to develop the idea that rules should fit their time and place. That Sometimes that allows them to underline that actually Christian morality is after all the best, but it also puts the whole way of thinking in a very different foundation. And that's a beautiful example of how enlightenment ways of thinking have really profound effects on people's thoughts and how they behave in the world. That's so interesting. And it so obviously is a parallel to what's happened in the Reformation, though the consequences of that were different. But in the Reformation, people have suddenly been able to think differently from each other, to have different ways of approaching a question about religion. And now you're thinking, okay, well, the relativity stretches beyond that. Actually, there are different ways of approaching how we conduct our lives. And devout Christians still look to scripture. I mean, scripture is wonderful because you can find pretty much anything you want. In the 18th century, a lot of people find a great deal of support for the idea that sexual mores are variable Old Testament tradition of polygamy. Why should marriage just be between one man and one woman? That's mainly why the 18th century sees this real upsurge across the Christian world of experimentation with polygamy. Again, that also had happened around the Reformation, but it's also a scriptural reinterpretation. I feel like we could keep going. Let's talk about the 18th and 19th century. But that has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Susanna. Before we finish, thank you so much for your support. I couldn't do it without you. I'd be very grateful if you'd subscribe to Not Just the Tudors and if you'd rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.